Hi, welcome to the Flyby. I'm John Gonzalez. Well, it's been a heck of a year for everyone. To call it eventful would be a massive understatement, and yet I feel that there are no string of words I can cobble together to accurately capture this year. But I do know that I speak for all of us here at the Flyby when I say that I hope you are all well and that the new year treats you well. For this episode, I've selected five segments from this year that struck a chord with me. It was a challenge to limit myself to only five segments out of the 90 or so from 2020. There were so many great reviews and insights this year. So let's dive in and listen as Ruth covers a problematic favorite, Five Tribes. Meeple Lady contends with the Elder Gods in Pandemic: Reign of Cthulhu. Sarah checks out banned books. Mason plays the game, and Lydia takes us to school with her review of Dead of Winter. We'll see you in 2021. And as always, thanks for listening. Five by listeners, it's Ruth here. Today, I'm talking about a game that has been put on and off of my list of titles to cover more times than I can count. That's because while I love playing the game, I have a hard time recommending it, and not for the reason many people seem to expect. I have no qualms recommending a game with the caveat that it doesn't work well for players who freeze up when considering options. I do have major problems recommending a game that was released with a terrible production decision made that nobody involved seemed to even consider would be offensive as all get out. The problem has technically been fixed, but the fact that original copies were released as they were is a problem. So here we go. Days of Wonder are known for releasing a single title each year, one that will be family weight, beautiful to look at, and just be a solid game all around. Mason discussed the river in episode 57 for an example of this. In 2014, we got Five Tribes, a game designed by Bruno Cathala, illustrated by Clement Masson, and featuring Mancala-esque gameplay. The game board consists of a five by six grid of location tiles, onto each of which three randomly drawn meeples are placed and set up. On a player's turn, they pick up all of the meeples from one. Tile and start moving orthogonally, dropping one meeple per tile that they cross over. The last meeple they drop has to match the color of at least one meeple already on that tile. The player then gets to take actions corresponding to the type of tile location and to the color of the meeple they place last, removing all meeples of that color as they take the action. If doing so completely empties the tile, they also get to place a camel on it, claiming the location for endgame scoring. Tile actions include adding features to increase the value of locations, buying goods at market, and recruiting powerful gin cards, which provide rule-breaking powers. Meeple actions include collecting goods, gathering gold, which is basically points, building up sets of meeples for endgame scoring, or assassinating meeples on the board or from in front of your opponents. Players continue playing rounds until there are no legal moves left, or until someone has placed their last camel. At which point, they use the included score sheet to earn points for basically everything in the game and then determine a winner. Five tribes takes randomness to the max. Each player turn changes the options for other players so dramatically that you can't plan ahead in this game. It's all about responding strategically to what's in front of you, which means you can get a lot of downtime if players are struggling to assess their options. Playing the game means having an idea of the action you want to take to reduce the options you're considering, but not being so tied to that idea that you spend forever looking for a move that doesn't exist. Added to the decision space is the fact that each round begins with a turn order auction in which players bid their points. You want to be sure you're not giving up more than you're likely to earn on your turn. So I really recommend setting aside the idea that going first is better and only bidding high if you've seen a fantastic move on the board that you don't want others to mess up before you get there. 
Honestly, most of the time in our games, players don't bid anything or bid really low, and that's how it ought to be. The auction does get a little different in the two-player game, as at this player count, each player gets two turns per round, and so they might wish to bid in such a way that they'd get to take consecutive turns, letting them set up a move on the first turn that'll earn a lot of points on the second. For this reason, a lot of players actually only like to play five tribes at two, since there's that bit more control and a lot less downtime. I like the game at 3 and 4 as well as at 2, but the group does need to be right for those games not to get frustrating. Five Tribes is a fun, quick, if you force yourself to take a chance on the best moves you've spotted, and relatively easy to teach game. But then there's the production issue I mentioned at the beginning. If you were to go out and buy the game now, as well as various goods in the marketplace, you'd also find cards representing fake years. These cards are turned in to increase the value of other actions in the game. But in the original release, those cards were slaves that players purchased at the market to increase the power of their actions later on. An apparent nod to historical accuracy, according to the initial publisher response, the cards featured emaciated, dark-skinned men hunched dejectedly and manacled at the ankles, ready to be used as essentially a wild resource. Why this ever got to publication is astounding. Days of Wonder's argument that Persian culture had slaves means absolutely nothing in a game based on the fantasy of Scheherazade's tales of magic and jinns. Perhaps including someone from the region depicted in the development process might have been a good idea. If you include slaves as a resource in a piece of entertainment, you had damn well be making a statement about the use of said slaves. And unlike the excellent game Freedom the Underground Railroad, the statement here appeared to be that the publisher saw no problem in treating a human being as something to buy and exploit for better actions. They eventually stopped doubling down on their claims of accuracy and replaced the cards with the figures, but it should never have been there in the first place. In the end, Five Tribes is a game I still have and I still play, but I don't feel comfortable recommending it without stressing that it was a very questionable release. Try before you buy, given the polarizing gameplay that many don't like, and if you do buy, I would suggest the secondary market to limit publisher gain, though you will want to carefully assess what cards are being included in an older copy. Until next time, you can find me on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. I'm a big fan of the Cthulhu HP Lovecraft universe. So when Pandemic rethemed its game into that world in 2016, I was totally excited and pretty indifferent to the original Pandemic game in general. But I do recognize its place as being a great gateway game to get more people into the hobby. And maybe playing Pandemic right now at this moment of history isn't everyone's cup of tea. This version does provide a nice escape from the same old, same old. Published by Z-Man Games and designed by Matt Leacock and Chuck D. Yeager, Pandemic Reign of Cthulhu is a beautiful cooperative game with awesome miniatures, great components, and in my opinion, more streamlined, but more punishing than the original. There are seven different roles to choose from, and instead of diseases, cultists and shogoths fill the board. They are pesky creatures. You as investigators are trying to seal gates in four cities in the Lovecraft world, Arkham, Innsmouth, Dunwich, and Kingsport. You all lose if Cthulhu awakens. If there aren't enough cultists or shogoths to fill the board, you run out of player cards, or all players go insane. The game plays similarly to the original Pandemic. You have four action points to use on your turn. Some of these actions include traveling from location to location, or removing cultists from off the board. 
like how you would remove the disease cubes. You can also give and take action cards from one another. You can also remove shogats from the board, but that requires three action points. But you gain a relic, which are tools to help you during the game. You can also move from gate to gate, but that would require rolling the sanity die, which can result in nothing, or it can hit your sanity or add cultists to your location. If you lose all your sanity, you become insane, and your character card is flipped over, and you have reduced player powers. A player can restore their sanity by sealing a gate while insane, which then transports the character to the church or hospital. Players take their turn, and then summoning cards are flipped over to show where to add cultists to the board. The Shogoth also moves closer to a gate when certain summoning cards are revealed. When a location surpasses three cultists, instead of an outbreak, an awakening happens. When this occurs, the next Great Old One is awakened, and that increases awful effects for your game. As more Great Old Ones are flipped over, the number of summoning cards flipped over after each turn gets larger. There are 12 Great Old Ones in the game, and only 6 plus Cthulhu will be used per game. Shuffled among the player deck are Evil Stirs cards. They are like the epidemic cards of the original game. The character who drew the card has to roll the sanity die. An awakening happens, the Shogoth appears on the board, and then the summoning cards are reshuffled and placed on top of the summoning deck. If you run out of cultists or shogoths to place, or you awaken Cthulhu, it's game over and you are devoured. The game is punishing, but it's quick and plays in about 40 minutes. Also, most gamers already know how to play Pandemic, so it'll be easy to jump right in. The cards and the game board are gorgeously designed, complete with the dark noir artwork representative of the Lovecraft universe its cities, and characters. The game also comes with character and creature miniatures, which totally add to the game. There's nothing scarier than a Shogoth coming your way, or a group of cultists up to no good at a specific location. Things can quickly get out of hand when groups of cultists in close proximity to each other start multiplying. If you don't like cooperative games, then Pandemic Reign of Cthulhu isn't for you. And while it may be too soon to play any type of Pandemic game, given the state of things in real life, this alternative world version may be just the thing we can all play together to feel like we have some kind of control over what's happening out there. And that's Pandemic Reign of Cthulhu. This is Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Friends, stay healthy and safe out there. Thanks for listening. Bye. I'm not going to start this review with the words, in these uncertain times, because I'm really tired of hearing the words, in these uncertain times. But the truth is, with things the way they are right now, I don't often have the energy or focus for a big, heavy game. Those games are great. I love them, and I'm looking forward to enjoying them again someday. But games that take hours of time and intense concentration, I'm just not up for that at the moment. I need a game that will give me a fun mental break, something that will help me relax and unwind after a day of video calls for work. A gaming snack. And that's where Banned Books comes in. Designed by Jason Tagmeyer and published in 2018, Banned Books is part of the wallet game series by Buttonshy, who specialize in micro card games that are easy to set up and learn and are so small they fit in a tiny plastic wallet. Banned Books is a solo game, and while I play solo games all the time, I'm especially glad to have a new one right now. 
The best thing about banned books is that like all button shy games, it's priced for the budget of these uncertain times, quote unquote. You can get the physical game for $12 from the publisher's website, buttonshygames.com, or you can get a print and play from PNP Arcade for $3. I don't normally do a lot of print and play because to be honest, I just don't have the time for it. I'd rather spend my gaming time playing games than printing and trimming cards. But Banned Books is a good print-and-play game because it's a micro-game. There are very few cards to print and trim. You do need to provide a few additional components to play Banned Books. 1d6 and 11 tokens. This makes Banned Books less portable than the other button-shy wallet games I've played. But since I won't be taking Banned Books or any games with me anywhere for the time being, it's not a concern. For the tokens, you can use coins, beads, Lego, cubes from another game, whatever. I have some dry erase tokens that I can label, so that's what I use, but they can be anything. Gameplay in banned books is simple. You play a character from a book that has been banned at some point in the U.S. Atticus Finch, Huckleberry Finn, and so forth. There are three adversaries, the powers that be, trying to stop you from... Well, to be honest, I'm not exactly sure what you and the powers that be are supposed to be doing. I have to say that the theme in banned books is quite thin. When I play, I don't feel like I'm doing anything related to books. You play a character from a book, but all that means is that you have a card in front of you with that character's name and picture. There's nothing in the mechanisms to ground banned books in its theme. It's basically an abstract game. In fact, the only way banned books reminds me of classic literature is in its lack of diversity. There are 10 characters to choose from. There's Alice from Alice in Wonderland. There's Celie from The Color Purple. And all the rest are white men. I can see that focusing on classic literature boxed them into being undiverse, since diversity in literature has been so long overlooked. But in a game that's about banned books, it's kind of a bummer that the game almost entirely excludes the people who have been unofficially banned from the canon. It would have been easy to do better. In some cases, they could have used the same book. The To Kill a Mockingbird card could have been Scout or Tom instead of Atticus. And if The Color Purple was really the only banned book with non-white characters they'd heard of, a quick Google for banned books by black authors, banned books by Latino authors, banned books about women would have given them a wealth of material. But setting all that aside and treating banned books as an abstract game, how is the gameplay? You have these three powers that be cards, and each one has a numbered track on it. You also have five cards showing different actions you're allowed to take like moving your tokens forward on the tracks, slowing the powers that be down, or using a special character-specific ability. Each round, you roll a die to see which of the powers that be advance their tokens. Your goal is to advance two of your tokens to the end of the track before two of the powers that be do. Each time you use an action, you have to flip it over, and it can't be used again until you take the flip action, which flips all your action cards back over and readies them for use. I found myself wanting to wait as long as possible before doing this to make the flip action more effective. But the catch is that the more cards you have flipped over, the more likely the powers are to activate. I love the push-pull balance of trying to move your tokens forward as fast as possible against the defensive goal of slowing the powers that be down as much as possible. I've also enjoyed trying out different characters, seeing which abilities work best for me. I found that some of the characters are easier to play than others, and you could choose a character you found less powerful to make the game more of a challenge. You can also adjust the powers that be to ramp up the difficulty level. Although, to be fair, Banned Books is never going to be that different from play to play. That's okay. It doesn't need to be. Not every game has to be a magnum opus. 
Banned Books does one thing and does it well. It's a gaming snack, a quick tactical solo game that hits the spot when you need a little break from everything. And that's Banned Books. My name is Sarah. Look me up on Twitter at Sarah Ovenall. Especially if you know of more fun little solo games, then I really want to hear from you. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about the game. So I'm late to the party on a lot of titles because I fundamentally reject the cult of the new. It's a capitalist con. Now, I know this is a dull axe that I've been grinding for years on this show, so if you don't like it, just skip ahead five minutes. Still here? Great. So back in 2015, this small box Stefan Bindorf title took over the tabletop world, despite having the worst name of anything released possibly ever. I hate the name viciously. It's confusing. It's hard to Google. It's difficult to talk about. I don't want to dwell on this, but it's really stupid, and it still makes me mad five years later. The full German title is even more absurd. The game, Spiel so long du kannst, or Play as long as you can. And yes, there is an ellipsis in the title. One of the English versions is called The Game, Are You Ready to Play the Game? Question mark. And one of the French versions translates as The Game, The Game is Not Your Friend. Just absolutely the stupidest possible titling for a game. So if you're looking for it on BGG, it's difficult to look up since there are thousands of titles with those two words in them. It is BGG entry number 173090, or you can search The Game Extreme and that later title will link back to it. To keep it less confusing, I'll say The Game when I'm referring to the actual game that you're playing here and The Game when I mean the literal title of this game. So what is it? It is a deck of 100 numerically sequential cards, 1 through 100. You've each got a hand of them, and you're trying to get rid of all of them as a group. Two stacks on the table play up, and two play down. If you have a card 10 away from the card that's face up, you can play it too. It's a co-op game, but there's a new version that two can play against each other, and a couple of other variations as well, but you can look those up yourself. It plays to five, but I've only played it at two. It also has some solo rules if you just want a hard puzzle to try your patience against. I didn't like the solo game very much, but I also really don't like puzzles either. Megan and I have been playing the game a lot since lockdown began. It's challenging, but not difficult to play. That is, it's easy to remember what you're supposed to do, and the emotional load of setting it up and playing it is super light. We've been playing a lot of games since we're home together all the time now, but I just really haven't had any energy to get out any of the big box euros. I think it's possible that the oppressive existential dread of living life every day in a pandemic has sapped a lot of the energy that that kind of thing really requires of me. And because of all that, the game has been great for the last few months. We're playing it with a copy of The Mind that I got in trade because they have the same number of cards. Uh, I printed off two cards with plus symbols and two cards with minus symbols to use on the table. They're available on BGG. You could also just use no cards. You could also play with a six nymph deck. It's not exactly the same number of cards, but it doesn't really matter. You could also take two cheap decks of playing cards and write on them, or take my suggestion from last episode and buy yourself some blank playing cards. You could, of course, also just buy a copy of The Game. It's cheap, and I think a very solid value for the repeat plays you'll get out of it. The original version put out by NSV, one of my favorite publishers, is kind of weirdly gruesome, which I normally would love but found a little distracting. The readily available retail version in the U.S. is the newer Pandasaurus edition with the mildly psychedelic art from Quanchi Moria. The new pretty version is between $10 and $13 in the U.S., available from most online retailers and probably from your local game store if you're the kind of person that leaves your house these days. It was a Target Stores exclusive for a while a couple of years ago, but it's available pretty widely now. If you're searching on Amazon, you have to type the game card game to pull it up. I know, it's just ridiculous. 
So if you do buy a retail copy of the game, you can also play the mind with it if you make yourself some throwing star and extra life cards or print them off or whatever. As a side note to all this, anyone who attempts to engage me on whether or not the mind is in fact a game or not is going to get blocked, canceled, and possibly nuked from orbit. I don't want to talk about it. We typically don't like communication-limited games. I've found them contrived or just frustrating, but Stefan Bendorf is a very good designer. He did Quicks and 21, so the dude knows what's up. And this one doesn't feel hokey. Even if you cheated and had full discussions about the cards in your hands, the game would still be pretty difficult. Your score is how many cards you have left when you can't play anymore, and after around two dozen plays, we feel pretty good if we get down into the single digits. We've beaten it a couple of times, that is, gotten rid of all of our cards, but it's pretty damn tough. There's a great sense of satisfaction that comes from having done well at this, maybe more than anything else I've played in a very long time. I'm not sorry that it took me five years to play the game. It just proves that there's zero urgency to play new titles as soon as they're available. It didn't cost me anything not to have played it, and now I can enjoy it. As a final side note, this got robbed for Spiel des Jahres that year by Colt Express, every copy of which has now fallen apart, but it doesn't matter because no one cares about it or ever plays it or ever talks about it anyway. So who should play the game? People who like small group co-ops, people who like tight little card games, people who like rules like puzzles, and people who prefer to play games without talking to each other. I give the game 7 out of 7 letters in the all-time dumbest title for one of the best co-op card games. I'm Mason Weaver. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Discount Compost, as well as on Board Game Geek as Breakfast Core. Wash your hands and wear a mask. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Lydia's Educational Game Corner, where I take a moment to showcase my game of the day and give you tips on how you can use it in your classroom or educational space. Today's game is one of my favorites, Dead of Winter, a crossroads game by Plaid Hat Games. It's designed by Jonathan Gilmore and Isaac Vega and artists David Richards, Fernanda Suarez, and Peter Walken. Dead of Winter was previously covered by Stephanie in episode 27 and Christy in episode 76. If you want to get more details on how the game is played, check those episodes out. Dead of Winter is a co-op survival game where you work together as a colony to stay alive against the living dead while facing a variety of challenges and crises such as gathering food from the local grocery store or grabbing ammo from the police station to fight against the undead. The goal of the game is to work together to complete a victory, but for each person to achieve victory, they also have to complete their personal secret objective, which could help or ruin the entire operation. The game could end with all players winning, or some winning, and some losers, or all players lose. Lame. I know. Dad of Winter is such a great game to bring into your educational space for a lesson of team building, with this mechanism of it being a cooperative game. But before I get into tips for the classroom, there are a couple of important things to keep in mind before incorporating it into your educational space. First, timing. How long do you have to play and teach this game? Will you have the players learn on their own, or will you teach before you play? Keep in mind the game can run longer than 45 minutes, so you have to make sure you have enough time to be able to teach this to the group. This game will have a hard time to put on a pause unless you mark it with every piece and item you have so you can restart it. If you are short on time, this game may not be for you. Next, the theme. As mentioned above, it is a game with the theme of zombies. It does mention killing zombies and using a variety of weapons to target them. Based on that information, there are some groups or parents that may not want their children to play this game. 
make sure to always get permission before playing a game on the table, and also get the feedback from the players if this is a game they would be interested in. Never force a game. You also have to consider age and grade level. Since Dead of Winter is a medium level game, and along with the mature theme, this game may be better suited for teenagers, so 13 and up. I would probably do this with a select group of 8th graders that are interested in more strategic games. It is an excellent game to incorporate during Halloween for a spooky experience. And lastly, modifications. Not everyone learns at the level and rate as others. Keep that in mind when introducing this game to players. I would suggest going with the easiest and shortest time frame for scenarios. And also know that there may not be players that are comfortable with playing on their own. Don't be afraid to modify the game to fit the group you are playing with. If you have a player that is worried about playing on their own, why not modify it to make it teams where they can have that support? If someone is not wanting to play as a character, but just wants to be a part of the experience, why not have that person be the person that reads the cards? Hands out wounds, frostbite. I will say it again, never be afraid to modify. There are many roles you can play with Dead of Winter that can include everyone that wants to join. Now, let's talk about how it can be used in your classroom or your own educational space. Not only can board games be fun, but they can also provide a great learning experience for all that play. I'm going to give you a few tips on how you can. I always recommend before teaching any games to develop resources to check for understanding before actually playing the game. Resources such as a vocabulary list of what words they will come across, the mechanisms of the games, or just what they think of Dead of Winter. By having a session zero or the introductory to the game will provide the participants easier comprehension of what they will expect when playing. After doing session zero, now you can truly focus on Dead of Winter assessments that you may have your table do as a group or individually. I am a middle school public speaking and drama teacher, so of course I have to now talk about how it fits with my subject. Dead of Winter has so many opportunities to be in my classroom or others related to it. For example, in the drama classroom, you can use the game as a tool where participants will have to replicate or create their own unique zombie makeup for a stage makeup unit that resembles their player card or do a character analysis where they create their backstory on the characters and have a monologue on how their characters feel while they do during a mission. For public speaking, you will be able to practice your deduction and persuasion skills to hide your true self if you are the enemy and persuade others to help accomplish your goal of winning. Choose your words wisely and focus on body language to keep your objectives alive. If you are teaching history, science, or ELA, you could do a lesson on the history of zombies and how the term zombie developed. You could even discuss the possibility of the zombie apocalypse and what may it look like during our pandemic times. And then after all that knowledge building, have your participants dive into the zombie apocalypse head first and write a reflection on how the experience was playing. There are so many things you can do, but so little time. But hopefully these tips will help you begin your journey of bringing the education into your gaming experience. Thank you for tuning in to Lydia's Educational Game Corner. Till next time, happy learning and happy gaming. You've been listening to The 5 By. We're a proud member of the Inside Voices Network. Follow us on Twitter at 5 By Games. Friend us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 Games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Find us on your podcast app of choice. Please consider supporting our work on Patreon at patreon.com slash 5 Thanks for listening.